Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast, starring Sam and Dan. Starring. My name is Dan Martin, a special effects artist and enthusiastic podcaster, and I'm joined as ever by my lovely co-host. Co-star, Sam Ashurst. Co-star, yes. I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm here to talk about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I'm very excited about. It's the oldest film that we've ever covered from 1920. So uh, over a hundred years old, but it's still resonant today. And Dan, what is the plot of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? We haven't done this in a while. We haven't. Well, this this depends on whether you talk about the version that the writers made or the version that the producers made. But ostensibly, when you watch it, the plot of the doctor, uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, is a a book-ended narrative where a man tells uh, a woman a story about the time a performer came to his town with a somnambulist a captive sleepwalker who he would do circusy tricks with and then as the uh, as the narrative goes on a series of deaths start happening and it is believed that the somnambulist is being sent out to perform these murders under the cover of darkness perfect absolutely and um we're talking about the version that is currently on the arrow streaming service it's kind of important to point that out because for a couple of reasons one i don't think they've ever put it out on blu-ray so this is a streaming service exclusive that we're talking about this time and it's also a 4k restoration which i'll get into a little bit later kind of how i felt about the restoration but it sounds like you have some interesting backstory that you want to touch on there dan so what are the differences between the writer's version and the producer's version and what version can people watch on the arrow streaming service so to my understanding the only version that's ever really been available is the producer's version and it's merely that the directors had the bookend overarching narrative and thus the the end because it's the second half of the book and sort of foisted upon them by producers who wanted to make it more acceptable to an audience, more more accessible. Less, less bleak. <laughs> Somehow, that's less bleak. The writer's version is really sort of sandwiched in the middle of the producer's version. What happened was the, the writers were two two young guys who had, you know, fresh off the back of the First World War, had all these horrible experiences. One of them had actually been in the war the other one had had sort of managed to avoid it but through uh, unpleasant circumstances and there they were addressing a lot of those feelings in the movie that is about the somnambulist in the town um and the producers added the bookend during production it wasn't shot afterwards they sort of enforced it so it really does only exist in that producer's version yeah i wonder if that um writer's version has been made available because the reason I asked is when we, Shay and I, were looking up the runtime of uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the first thing that comes up is a 51-minute version, which obviously is not this version. Yeah, so I think perhaps it's out there. Let's just stick to the version that we saw, which is uh, an incredible movie. It's treated as being a bit of a, an art film now, possibly because it's a silent, possibly because you know, it has that extraordinary production design. But this was a straight-up commercial movie when it was released. It wasn't treated as uh, something kind of weird and odd. It was treated as something that was designed to entertain its audiences. And it certainly succeeds on that front, which is 
possibly why it survived the test of time. Um, why do you think this film has survived the test of time? At the time, films were much more international because they were silent, so they could travel. So I think it became embedded in culture worldwide in the way that a sound movie with similar plots and themes maybe wouldn't. But also, it's such an innovative film. It, 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 it created so much that was new whether it was the expressionist style that really kind of was anchored at this moment that the weimar period had pulled all of the german movie studios together um but uh, cabinet of galigari was made by decla which was one of the very few independent studios that was still existing after that sort of like contraction of of control over cinema but as a result they were subject to things like electricity rations so they made decisions to to sort of paint in their lighting rather than use lights for certain scenes you know using extra lights but rather than trying to mimic the look of cinema that already was already out there they thought that they they, they couldn't compete with that so they had to make this sort of incredible bold version to sort of lean into the restrictions they had uh and and it is such an evocative film so much of that so much of that imagery has sort of like trailed through cinema all the way up until the modern day um it's so influential and you know and the other expressionist films that came afterwards also but yeah i, I think it's it's had an incredibly long life and in, and has cast you know appropriately has cast a very long shadow across the industry and i think that's one of the reasons it's remembered so fondly it's also kind of the arguably the first horror movie yeah i mean there's thomas edison's frankenstein but obviously that's kind of a short that that came before this um but in terms of feature films i suppose that's right it, it probably is the first horror film and yeah it's the same year as de golem but otherwise there's not a feature before it i don't think yeah exactly it, it's really interesting obviously germany is arguably the cradle of film because you've got places like Studio Babelsberg, which was founded in, in 1912 and was the largest film studio in the world at that moment in time. And so I think that's also a, a potential reason why this has kind of lasted because the focal point was Germany in those early years of cinema and some incredible silent movies were made at uh, Babelsberg Studio, not Dr. Caligari, which I think is uh, one of the reasons it's special is because of the restrictions put on it. I don't think uh, Caligari yeah, exactly. would be as special if it was in a huge studio space. Um, it's the fact that they had such limited space and resources to work with. Uh, a lot of those um, production design quirks uh, to solve problems rather than to you know express a vision however there is a persistent vision in this movie that has made it connect with artists across time and i think that's another reason this has lasted because it's connected with people who have weaved it into their own movies tim burton is obviously a standout you can see yeah. so much of tim burton in this film feels like he based pretty much his entire career on this movie as well as yeah, a generation between... <laughs> sorry between this and edward gorey you've basically got a and make it yourself at home, Tim Burton. Absolutely, and you've also got a, a make it yourself version of a generation of goths as well. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's it's a wonderful movie, and I know. Speaking about influence, it was a really important film to James Swanton when we were discussing Frankenstein's Creature, and James Swanton is an extraordinary actor. You can see a lot of his style in this film, right? In James's performance style. There's a couple of moments in Caligari where I felt like I could be looking at James Swanton. Absolutely. James has always had a very strong affinity to Conrad Veidt, who's, you know, who's in 
cabinet of Dr. Caligari and was such a an amazing presence on the screen mm. and also knows I'd say probably more about him than anyone I've ever spoken to yeah exactly yeah that would have been a good extra feature actually getting James on to talk about that but um we haven't done that so um spoiler alert for extra features <laughs> <laughs> and yeah this is a 4k restoration I'd be very interested to get your feelings on this for me personally I think it's maybe a little bit too clear for both the production design, which is obviously such a huge element of this movie, and the performances. You can kind of see every brushstroke in both. I think maybe I prefer, you know, a VHS quality for movies like this, but I know that there are plenty of people out there that want to see films in as as much detail as possible. Where do you land on, on this side of the debate with cabinet of dr caligari specifically often i do find that it's possible to go too far and that it's a little bit unfair on the filmmakers to be displaying these movies in in a format that really they have no way of predicting but that's predicated on the idea that you're sort of pulling back the curtain and and showing the audience the the artifice Hmm. of the of the process of making film but actually i think that the filmmakers for caligari have so heavily embraced the artifice that it it didn't really rob it of anything for mm-hmm. for me. When I watch a Powell and Pressburger movie and you can see hairpins and the edge of makeup, it's it feels like cheating. But when you watch the the Caligari, you know the cabinet of Caligari at this level, and you can see the brush strokes in the back painting, I don't mind it. Like I like that, it, mm-hmm. especially because of where the plot goes and how the reveal plays with the idea of artifice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is the first film with an unreliable narrator, after all. Mm-hmm. It all feels like an oh my god, of course moment. It's so nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I think. For me, and I think for Shay as well, Shay brought up the point that the performances are so big, like especially in the face expressions, like they're really selling everything. I know that's partly the performance style of the time, but this feels like an extreme version of that. And it could be tied to the unreliable narrator thing, but it felt a little bit like they were expecting their performances to be a little bit blurred out, a little bit hard to read, so they were really going all out. But again, like I said, it could be the acting style of the time, which was very influenced by theatre. And this frequently feels like a play in terms of that kind of extreme set design and the way people move through the frame and stuff. But yeah, and and I'm not saying this is a reason not to watch it on at the Arrow streaming service. If you haven't seen this movie, then you're in for such a, a wonderful delight. But just for me personally, it felt odd. Um, to see it so crystal clear but um, you know it's not always a problem with me but just for some reason for this one it it distracted me a little bit I would say that the aesthetic is is markedly different between the the surrounding narrative and the and the central film Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the the jagged backgrounds the 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 skewed props and set dressings of the middle section of the movie or the middle two-thirds of the movie are dramatically missing from the the wraparound which has a much more sort of geometric and and real worldy kind of feel to it but doesn't that speak to you of producer compromise doesn't that speak haven't you been in that situation on a million films where the producers said we've got to do this and it's been like okay (laughs) we'll do it well or the producer has said you've got to do this because everything else is too weird we've got to have something grounded in reality uh, not I mean, it's entirely possible. I mean, the, 
the, the, the heart. filmmakers didn't want to do it. So, like, yeah, you've, that's I what think, I'm saying. You know, it it then it, it may be that there's protest uh, in the aesthetic, but also I I feel like there is a because they're different worlds. Not wanting to get, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. spoilers for a hundred and three-year-old film well i always say it i i hear that a lot where people say oh spoilers for a 40 year old movie it doesn't matter it could be six thousand years old and there's people who haven't had a chance to watch yeah no i completely agree i completely agree yeah um i I mean we're trying to court people into watching this a magnificent film yeah like that's you know and, and if you haven't seen it and if you do have the stomach for silent film and i know that they're not for everyone um, Why? Then, uh, hold on, hold know, on, hold on. Give it a go. Yeah, definitely give it a go. This is something I actually want to talk about, Dan. Why are people put off of silent movies? Like, how can we? If there's anyone listening to this who's like, ah, no, I, I, I didn't realise that was silent. I'm not going to bother with it. How can we convince them to watch silent movies? Because for me, silent movies are one of the purest forms of of cinema, without wanting to sound like a pretentious git. Um, I I think that there's something really special about the experience of watching, you know, purely visual stuff, obviously with, you know, titles to put across dialogue, but they're so much more visually resonant and the way they interact with the music is very different. And, you know, obviously a keystone of how cinema has evolved, but there's just something so, so special about silent movies. So, Dan... I'm someone who doesn't like them. Sell them to me, please. I mean... <laughs> or do you not like them? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I like them. I, I do occasionally find them harder going, but I, I, I think that may be more just because of the the yawning chasm of style between then and now, like when they were made, mm-hmm. because I'll very happily watch a massive dialogue-free montage in a crazy French surrealist film, as discussed last week, with no dialogue. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that doesn't put me off. Um, but it's being told in a much more modern filmic language. There is, you're right, there's a purity to them that was somewhat lost with the advent of spoken dialogue. I, I don't know, it's, it's no different from people saying they don't watch subtitle movies or people saying they don't watch black and white movies. It's very hard to convince those people that they're insane. <laughs> um yeah i mean it kind of yeah i think there's more of a resistance to silent films for some reason more so than um subtitles more so than even black and white i think they're seen as more of a arty curiosity rather than something that can genuinely thrill and entertain and we'll get into other examples in my uh, recommendation section but go on what were you gonna ask do you not think it's because being a silent film is evocative or, or or indicates the presence of other things that people find difficult? So it's like when you recommend someone a film, you might tell them a thing about the film that they'll love and they'll go and watch it and they love it. Or there was a thing you didn't mention that p- turns them off mm. that they don't like and they, and they come away from it and they're like, oh, yeah, no, I can't watch that. It's got spiders in it, you know, whatever. But <laughs> when you tell someone this film is a silent film they immediately know it's in black and white they immediately know it's it's ostensibly subtitled if there's any dialogue it's going to be written on the screen all of those other things that people have prejudice about are already present and then on top of that it's probably going to be very stylized it's probably not going to be the crispest quality it's you know all these other little things that the different rings of in the inferno but with cinema nerds (laughs) like make less and less accessible 
it, I don't think it's that it's silent. I think it's that silent films are also all these other things, and people have learned that, which is a shame because it turns people off from a lot of great films. It's a shame because it's also it could go the other way, you know, like all the positive things that people love about films, so really striking imagery or you know emotion. Um, one of the reasons that we all watch movies is we want to feel something and there's that cliche of movies are uh, emotion generating machines and there's no more finely tuned emotion generating machine than a silent movie it's literally really trying to reach into the audience and uh, manipulate your heart so there's that and people love music in movies and you get some of the finest examples of orchestral style stuff in in silent movies and people watch films for like iconic stars and again so much of this imagery was designed to turn these people into literal oh, yeah. icons you know like Joan of Arc for example we need to do more to maybe let people know that these aren't just like homework movies they're sweeping fantasies they're epic romances they're huge huge practical effects laden monstrosities <laughs> like some of the sets <laughs> some of the sets in the silent era are just baffling like it's like how the hell did they create that from what they had at the time so anyway yeah enough enough kind of soapboxing if you don't like silent movies i don't hate you it's fine but i do feel like potentially a, you're missing out on some really really wonderful experiences i have a question about silent films for you sam sure how do you feel about silent films being released with new soundtracks i actually kind of love it it creates a, a new experience and it's lovely to see how different composers interpret or you know whoever's decided to put the new score on how they interpret the narrative yeah i love it and there's not much better than a silent movie with a live performance of the music if you ever precious arrowhead have an opportunity to go to an event like that i really recommend it it's a very very powerful experience one more question before we move on has the cabinet of dr caligari ever been an influence on you dan has a director ever used it as a reference point with you or is there anything in here that you've brought into a production i don't i don't know if it's ever been an influence as directly as someone citing it but i we did german expressionism when i was doing film studies at a level uh, it was one of my modules and that was sort of like the early doors of me realizing that you didn't just passively watch film you know you you mm. could be part of it we we talk about the ingenuity of limitation and the idea that not having all the resources in the world uh, can often make you be very inventive can often make you be very um creative uh and I think that I probably got a lot of that from learning about the Weimar period of cinema in, in Germany. Like, I do think that a lot of these huge films that are out now, a lot of the problems that I have with them, a lot of the things that I find quite bland, are probably because they're people's first idea. Like, yeah. someone goes, oh, we could do this, and money's no object, so then they just do it. Yeah. And it's like, but you haven't had to fight. You haven't had to create and, and wring something out of nothing to make that happen on the screen because you just get whatever you want you know whereas all of these you know whether it's the the german films of the of the 20s or like spaghetti westerns or any like mm. slightly outsider version of cinema where people are having to to make art against the odds mm. that's where that's the real 
like wellspring of creativity i think absolutely and that's across the board that works in comics as well like the diy yeah. comics so much more interesting than the dc and marvel stuff should we uh move on to recommendations based on the cabinet of dr caligari yeah let's do that let's do that all right so um what have you got first so i have uh four <laughs> God. And I'm happy not to do all four, right? Okay. But I'm also, but but I'm happy to go second because it means I'm I'm very safe. All right, yeah. All right, I'll, I'll go first. Even if you pick two of my four, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. So and maybe I'm, I will do all four anyway. We'll see. <laughs> I'm going to start with "Sunrise: A Song of Two Humans," which is another 20s silence written by Carl Mayer, who's the writer of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And Sunrise is a little bit more sophisticated in its storytelling and way more traditional in its setting. But for me, it's just as awe-inspiring. And it's not just me. This is a perennial picture on most serious critics' best movies of all time lists. It's about an affair. It gets pretty dark. And it's just beautifully performed and shot. I would put this up against any modern movie in terms of its resonance. I won't say much more than that because this is one that's been talked about quite a lot and if you are interested in silent movies then you already know about it and if you're not then I'd advise you go in as cold as possible to experience it in the way that it's meant to be experienced. So yeah, Sunrise, I recommend it. Dan, was that on your list of four? It was not. It was not. Excellent. Um, so my first recommendation, and you know how I said I have four? Mm-hmm. One of one of one of them is three films. <laughs> so one of my recommendations is a nineteen thirteen film called The Student of Prague. The Student of Prague is based on a novel by Henrik Galin, who wrote the the De Golem and he wrote Mano's Nosferatu as well. And he actually later remade the student of Prague himself with, as a director in 1926 as well so I'm, I'm recommending both of those and then there's a, another version of it later that I've not seen but I'm sort of tacitly recommending anyway because I think it's very interesting to see rather than looking at how that kind of Weimar period and, and the student of Prague is not as audacious in its stylization as as Caligari but it, it is the one of the first examples of German cinema moving away from the proscenium style, which was the pure theatre, everything shot from one angle, everything sort of like performed as though it were to a singular seated audience, and moving off to this sort of unchained camera that, that Lang would really like explode later on. And while the 13, 1913 version is, is perhaps a little clunky in places, it's it's a it's a great story that is told slightly differently in each version but it's really interesting to see how it evolves through german cinema even just between 1913 and 1926 so you know 13 years apart it it centers around a young man who is sort of tricked into selling his reflection to the devil and then not unlike the somnambulist in caligari the reflection is sent out by the devil to commit murders that he then gets blamed for and the endings are slightly different in the two versions that i've seen but eventually he there's a sort of showdown with his own reflection it's absolutely lovely and i very strongly recommend it excellent wonderful recommendation and next up from me is one that very possibly will be in dan's list it is dr mabuse the gambler now Beautiful. this is another silent from the 20s with truly striking imagery uh, but it's just a little bit longer in terms of runtime. It runs at just over four hours long, but it's just as transfixing. 
It's about a criminal genius who uses hypnotism to con upper-class gamblers, and the influence from Caligari is very clear. It's an early work from the magnificent Fritz Lang, uh, released in 1922, so two years after Caligari, which is the kind of gestation period for someone seeing a film being blown away by it and wanting to do their own kind of version um but yeah it's absolutely one of his best and this and the sequel testament of dr mabuse are essential watches with one of the best villains in cinema history so yeah dr mabuse the gambler another very influential film apparently christopher nolan watched this and testament when creating the joker and um yeah you can kind of see some resonances there as well but uh yeah if you haven't seen it you're in for a wonderful wonderful and very epic experience i mean talk about things putting people off from watching stuff having to set aside four hours uh, in the modern era isn't easy but um it is worth it so yeah dr mabuse the gambler i recommend it dan what's next yeah. from you and was that on your list it's, uh, it wasn't on my list it's an absolute treat it was the second german expressionist film i ever watched as part oh, amazing. of my film studies course oh it's awesome. an absolute treat yeah um wonderful. yeah it's I, I would also say that the third film in the series the thousand eyes of dr mabuse is also fantastic nice. <laughs> you should watch that as well yeah absolutely um, yeah, yeah there are a lot of questionable somewhere between enthusiastic fan films and very very low budget oh this is out of copyright films of dr mabuse that that aren't necessarily worth digging into my i'm gonna let you ch- pick which my next recommendation is sam um, All right. Do you want a documentary? Yeah. Or do you want a children's film? Let's go for the documentary. Why not? So the documentary is a German documentary. It's on DVD from Kino in the States. A Another documentary by the same filmmaker was included on the special features of the Eureka release of Caligari. It's called From Caligari to Hitler, based on a famous uh, film text of the same name, uh, directed by Rudiger Schussland, which I know I have butchered as a name, and I apologise. And it's a really, really interesting uh, insight into the sort of predictive narrative that was running through German Expressionist cinema and how it was like filtering the mood of the people and can be seen with hindsight to sort of show how inevitable the rise of fascism in Germany was mm-hmm. uh, with how Germany was sort of like left after the First World War, how they were treated after the First World War. It's absolutely fantastic. There are clips of it floating around. Uh, the Kino DVD is, is very good. Excellent. What an amazing viewing marathon. For anyone who hasn't seen any of these movies, that's kind of a perfect, perfect combination of films. But I know that people will be upset if I don't ask you for your full list of recommendations. So very quickly, Dan, (laughs) what else have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so one of them, as far as I know, doesn't exist. (laughs) Right. Scratch that. No, no, it's fine. We'll do it quickly. So um, there are clips of it, which means it definitely was filmed but I don't know if it's ever been released. Martin Jacques, or Martin Jacques, who is the lead singer of the band The Tiger Lilies, did a live on-stage performance of a new soundtrack to Dr. Caligari in 2012 at the Soho Theatre. And I was there, and it was amazing, and I would love to watch it again. So really, I, what I'm doing is seeing if any of our listeners have any way of contacting anyone who knows anything uh, and might be able to reach out to that. God damn it, put that out. Like, put it out on for like for sale on YouTube, and I'll buy it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the kids' film was Box Trolls. Because oh, the Box Trolls okay. is yeah. so heavily influenced by Dr. Caligari. And I feel like it's one of those Leica films. It, it's the Leica film that was, in for some reason, slightly underpraised. Mm. Like, everyone remembers Coraline, and Paranorman was a big fanfare when it came out. And Kubo and, and the Three Strings, Twelve Strings, however many strings, got a lot of marketing behind it because it was very big budget. But Box Trolls is probably my favourite of their movies. All of their films have reference to German expressionism but the the way in which the streets are sort of jagged and broken and the the general space the world of the box trolls feels so Caligarian I feel like it has to be a, a conscious reference and it's a great film absolutely yeah wonderful all right well all good stuff I do think that the stronger ones did go into your actual recommendations but still I'm glad to hear these other two because now people have a day's worth of watching instead of half a day so that's great all right especially (laughs) if you include the time it'll take to track down the one that you recommended that doesn't actually exist um potentially (laughs) i love you dan all right here we go we're going to go into recommendations from this week what have you got first i re-watched a japanese animation that i saw when it first came out and and i had bought on blu-ray from germany because it was the only way I could get hold of it. And then it just sat on my shelf since then. And a friend came over and we were talking about film. It just, it felt like the thing that they were asking to see. And I'd, for- I'd forgotten quite how intense it gets. <laughs> but it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the English translation uh, is black and white. It's, the Japanese title is, and again, I'm going to butcher it. So I apologize. Ten- Tekin Concrete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's perfect. And it's about yeah. uh, two young boys... Uh, who live in an area of Japan. They're part of a a subgroup of sort of orphans, social group of orphans that live in this town. And it's ostensibly a film about connections, duplicity, the the need for connectivity socially. And it plays that across what that means in the social strata, but also what mean what happens when these two children are separated from each other, when they're forced no longer to be in each other's lives by sort of like cold Yakuza industrialists, the the bribery and corruption that goes into the development of, of modern Tokyo. It's absolutely heartbreaking in places. Like Caligari, it plays with the idea of a perceived world versus a real world. It's beautiful. Uh, it's all very traditional animation but it uses a lot of three-dimensional environments to to really build this world up Um, the director did one of the segments in the animatrix if that is a selling point it should be uh, for people it's an absolute delight and I feel like it's very underseen partly because it's quite hard to find (laughs) excellent excellent and if you want a t-shirt from Techoncrete then uh, head to Music Plastique which is a record store um, in the Lloyd Centre Mall in Portland, Oregon. Might be a bit of a trip. <laughs> really? Um, but yeah, um, it's an excellent, excellent record store. And they collaborate with a, a place called Dream Street to make their own T-shirts. And uh, the guy who owns it loves Tech Concrete. So yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, my recommendation this week is The Suspect, which is a rather brilliant Robert Siermack movie starring... Charles Lawton as a man in a very unhappy marriage who goes to extreme lengths after he meets another woman. Very Hitchcockian plot and style and it's all delivered by a true, true genius actor. Uh, Lawton makes you feel every moment of this movie. It's really beautiful stuff. 
as I speak now, I have a feeling that maybe you've recommended this in the past. I don't know. Maybe we've hit <laughs> that point in the podcast lifespan. But yeah, The Suspect, I recommend it. Dan, have you seen and or recommended The Suspect in the past? I've I've seen it. It definitely hasn't been a recommendation oh, uh, based on something. It oh. may have been a recommendation on previous weeks i don't know it entirely depends how great the films i watched were that week but it would always yeah. be a contender because it is a great film oh it's magnificent really magnificent so yeah it's a double recommendation if it has appeared before but uh, if not it's very special all right dan what is last from you this time so i, I and it's another rewatch for me i'm gonna be i'm gonna be completely honest with you sam i was i was pretty intoxicated when I watch this film, that's mm-hmm. going to be relevant to my description of the experience of watching this film. Mm-hmm. It's Ron Frick's Samsara. Okay. Uh, it's uh, Frick's third picture in a trilogy that started with Kronos and then Baraka and then Samsara is the third film. They are non-narrative, so you do not need to watch them in order, although I do recommend the other two movies. It's ostensibly a sort of travelogue film, but it's a very arty travelogue film. It was shot over five years. It's all shot on 70mm, and I literally wept watching oh, this wow. movie just at the sheer the sheer beauty my i was a, like a gape at this movie i've seen it before <laughs> like i would but i was like slack literally slack jawed with tears running down my face at the sheer fucking power of this film wow it is it's it i would say it's very like stylistically for our listeners who haven't watched it uh, it's stylistically very close to the Koinoskatsi pictures it is maybe more intense mm-hmm. than Koinoskatsi although maybe some of that is due to the technology that Freck had at his uh, at his fingertips this is the third one the third of the Koinoskatsi pictures Koinoskatsi Panoskatsi I can't remember the name of the third one was a little disappointing to me it was digital whereas this is the, you know he's moved on to 70mm film at this point it's absolutely jaw-dropping it's also worth noting that it is the the place where uh, Olivier de Sagazan the French artist who you may have seen who puts clay on his face and like rips it off with paint underneath it and it's all very like sort of earthy and anatomical there's a whole section of his work just sort of like slotted into the movie as well it's mm-hmm. quite arresting when it happens mm-hmm. also there's some footage that i was doing the rounds on social media recently which is a clip from this movie which is all of the chinese factory workers in the pink uh, static free uniforms working on the on the phones Mm-hmm. Uh, working on like, little electrical devices because it does a very good job of of juxtaposing like massive sweeping majestic nature and like the these you know huge Indonesian temples v- viewed from the sky at magic hour with lots, like the breaking sun glistening off all these gold surfaces with let's say the decimation of hurricane katrina or a slaughterhouse or like it's quite a quite a bombardment of images mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i really cannot recommend it enough I, oh. I, I think it's going to become a yearly watch for me oh well well let's um just give everyone the title one more time just in case uh, they didn't catch it on first go and your passion has now made them really want to seek it out yeah give us the title one more it, time it's called samsara that's s-a-m-s-a-r-a uh, it's from 2011 and it's directed by ron frick who i think was the dop on one of the star wars films oh okay interesting so no wonder you love this one so much eh? Well, i do i do love star wars films as i almost said earlier when you were talking about there's lots of reasons people go to the cinema i yeah. i only watch films with pedro pascal in now so Oh, there you go. Luckily, that means I can watch everything. 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Well, have you developed? Yeah, no, he a, was. I was. I was wrong. Crush. He wasn't a. He wasn't a cinematographer. He was a. Um. He was in the camera department for oh, okay. episode three. Oh wow. Okay. Well, episode three is good. All right. Excellent. All right. Well. Um. Enough Star Wars talk. Let's move into Never. one of the the best sections of this show. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. No extra features. Uh, Dan. No. Oh no wait. Extra whoa. 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 Have well, you got an extra? I've got a feature? soft extra feature. All right. I've got a very soft extra feature. You should go and check out the Mind and Body Part Three episode of the Evolution of Horror, in which James Swanton talks about the cabin of Doctor Caligari. There you go. There you go. And, and particularly about Conrad Veidt. Yeah, and just imagine he's saying that on this show in this section. I'm sure Mike Munster I'm just, won't. I don't mind think that. Michael Mind does. No. Just claiming that as just, an extra just, feature to this just episode. Stealing it totally yeah yeah absolutely all right well just download it and edit it in now there you go perfect (laughs) i'll double check that's okay so uh yeah if if it was fine you'll hear it now yeah you didn't hear it because i didn't even bother checking okay now let us move into (laughs) how people can (laughs) follow us on the internet dan how can people search you out across the the fields of online twitter and uh instagram i am at 13 finger effects i have recently crossed something of a subscriber barrier or a follower barrier whatever it's called on um on twitter and i think it's because i'm sharing loads of pictures of fight cox from uh infinity pool which people seem to like uh turns out fake penis twitter is a very powerful subset it sure is wow that's incredible wow so this was an actual thing rather than just elon musk flip the wrong switch and everyone couldn't follow anyone i'll tell you, you a fun thing about what Elon musk's done have you noticed i don't know if you've used twitter enough to have realized they've mm. paywalled second id verification like i can't use second authentication login anymore because mm. i don't pay for my blue tick oh fuck. so because i'm a legacy blue ticker rather than a, a subscription yeah, yeah. blue ticker they've they've taken away my ability to use a secure login well, that's a, a wonderful thing to announce to thousands of people, though I trust every single last one of the Precious Arrowheads listening to this, and I know you do too. Um, and I think yeah, there are probably sucks. much more interesting legacy blue tick people to hack <laughs> now that none of them have <laughs> good point authentica- uh, authenticated login. Good point. What would they do to you, like make you put up loads of pictures of cocks? I mean... Yeah, that, exactly. Oh anyway. God, how would anyone? How would my account and followers ever recover yeah, if my exactly. entire timeline was suddenly full of jizzing dicks? <laughs> oh, well, wonderful. <laughs> my uh, request for people to look at things on the internet is not connected to Twitter or Instagram this time. I'm simply going to ask people to search out Frankenstein's Creature, uh, which is now available on Apple TV and Amazon Prime (gasps) in the UK and the US to rent or buy, which is very exciting. It's been unavailable for so long, and I'm not actually sure how long it will be on those platforms, so please do give it a watch while you can. I'm still very proud of that movie, and I'm very happy that it's more accessible right now. So yeah, Frankenstein's Creature, Apple TV or Amazon Prime. And it might be of interest to people listening to this episode, right, Dan? Oh, it very much would be, yeah. If you yeah. if you like Cabinet of Caligari and you're interested in how it has spread its long and jagged tendrils into the world of cinema, then there is no better example of how how uh, how incredibly enduring its legacy is than Frankenstein's Creature. Oh, thank you very much, Dan. That's lovely. All right. Well, I'm not going to ask anyone to follow me on anything else. Just please watch that. And so, 
Any last words, Dan? No, I'm out, mate. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Next time. Bye. Bye.